I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. This week, I am pleased to announce that my sponsor is going to be somebody I've picked. I'm not accepting money from sponsors anymore. I'm just trying to help out small businesses um, while we all go through this period of time. And I've collaborated with Page One Books, pageonebooks.com, and the one is not O-N-E, it's page number one, pageonebooks.com, and also Hampton's Hand Poured, which is a small candle-making business. And the three of us have teamed up to create a book box bundle containing three books that are particularly relevant slash funny slash entertaining for this period of time, one by John Kenny, one by Carla Nomberg, and one by Jen Gotch. And also a candle that has a label that says, next chapter, please, because... I don't know about you, I'm definitely ready for the next chapter of life. So please go on page1books.com. 15% of the proceeds, which is my entire portion, I'm donating to COVID-19 recovery efforts. So buy yourself a box, send a box to someone who you know needs a pick-me-up. It'll be really helpful. They'll read the three books, light a candle, and feel immediately better. Now's the time, and it helps support these two small businesses, Page One Books and Hampton's Hand Poured, and you'll make a difference on so many levels. So please check it out. It's on my website, and it's also on pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much. Also, just wanted to remind you that this week, like every week, I have five new essays up in We Found Time, my new online magazine. We Found Time's five essays this week are written by Christina Geist, Tiffany Schlain, Wendy Walker, Beth Riccanati, and Mara Laura Philpot, who have all been on my podcast already. So you might have listened to their episodes or you should go back and listen to them again. And they've written fantastic essays on everything from taking one day off a week for technology to not prioritizing finding a new man when you have a teenage boy at home, all sorts of great stuff. So please check out wefoundtime.com any day this week for our five new essays. I'm here today with Serena Burdick, who's the author of The Girls with No Name and Girl in the Afternoon. She's the 2017 International Book Award winner for historical fiction. She studied creative writing at Sarah Lawrence, holds a Bachelor of Arts from Brooklyn College in English Literature, and an Associates of Arts from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Theater. She currently lives in Massachusetts with her family. Welcome, Serena. Thanks so much for coming out. Moms don't have time to read books. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy The Girls with No Name. So good. Good. Really enjoyed. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Could you please tell listeners what this book is about? Yeah, it's ultimately the story of two sisters. They're preteens. It takes place in New York City in 1913. It's a story about them breaking away from sort of Victorian conventions that they grew up in. They find a band of Romani people living near their very wealthy home. And one of the sisters ends up disappearing. And her younger sister thinks that her father has put her in the House of Mercy, which was a home for wayward girls and women who are not virtuous or acting properly. So the younger sister seeks to find her and commits herself to the House of Mercy in hopes that her sister is there. It's kind of the premise. (laughs) Before I started reading it, I didn't realize how privileged the girl's family was. I thought, oh, a girl who was like going to a band of gypsies and, you know, who was the family to begin with? But then you have all these references to, you know, the theater and playing tennis and their affluent lifestyle. Yes. And then it made it even more of a contrast. Like, why on earth would they end up, your opening scene, she's, you know, on her face basically in the dark. Not that it would make it okay to be from the less wealthy family, but it was just the contrast was so much greater than I originally 
that when I started reading it. Yeah, I was I set out to do that. And one of the reasons I liked the idea of the contrast between also the the Romani lifestyle mm-hmm. for them that was so foreign and yes. exotic in this way that was nothing that they had grown up in. And it is true that the House of Mercy was not a place that wealthy girls would generally go to. It was a home for destitute girls, ultimately. So, so tell me about why you started researching the House of Mercy in places like it. What happened in your real life that set you off on this trail of research? I heard a news report on the BBC one morning from Ireland. It was about the Irish Magdalene Laundries. And I had never heard of them. And so I became really intrigued with that, mostly shocked because they didn't close until the 1990s. Wow. And women were really upset and they were seeking restitution from the government, wanting to find their children and wanting money for the years of labor that they did. So I kind of went down that rabbit hole and thinking I would write something that took place in Ireland. But doing my research, I discovered that the laundries existed here and I had never heard of them here. They were all over the world. There were many in Australia And then that became a far more intriguing topic to write about something that was right in my backyard ultimately and that I didn't have any idea kind of existed and no one had ever talked about before. And the, and the laundries were places where girls literally lived and they were forced to do the laundry? Correct, yes. So they were religious-run institutions. This one in New York was Protestant Episcopalian. And they were considered charitable organizations to help take in girls who had nowhere else to go. But girls were committed for nothing, really. Well, it was at a time when women were still property of men and were completely dependent on men. So if your husband or father didn't think that you were behaving correctly, they would send you to this place to be reformed. And within that, you were made to work every day as part of your... <laughs> and they made, the church made millions of dollars. They were services for the wealthy who dropped off their laundry and had their laundry done. And these girls worked in these conditions. Did people know that the girls were doing the laundry? Yes. And right. they were okay with that? Well, yeah, they were considered... It, at the time, it was fine. It was what these girls needed. Okay. And I think people viewed them as charitable organizations because they were giving them a roof over their head and right. feeding them. They were taking in a lot of women off the streets who didn't want to go, but were maybe actual prostitutes or just were being accused of being a prostitute. And it could be because they had nowhere to go and they were just on the streets because no one was taking care of them. I've heard that they would raid brothels and take girls from them and commit them. I mean, it was a crime to be a prostitute, so any woman could sort of be accused of that crime if she just had nowhere to go and was out on the street. Wow. So, yeah. And like I to do watch think, what you wear, like, can you imagine just having to deal with the fact you could be, like, plucked off the street and thrown in somewhere for, like, maybe you had a racy dress on? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Or any, right. Yeah. And uh, you look at a boy the wrong way and someone thinks you're, you know, the way to behave in 1913 was still, like, the 20s had not hit yet. So it was very proper Oh, up we have all our societal issues today, but at least we don't have that particular <laughs> yes, issue. So that's good. That's, that's like good. a blessing, yes. right? <laughs> but this is what's so interesting. What makes you a writer, and obviously a great writer, is you hear a story on the BBC, and instead of just thinking like, huh, that's interesting, which is what I might do when I hear a story <laughs> like that, you create an, an entire fictitious world and play out a, a family drama within it based on that. What do you think? Have you always been like that? Or how did you know you were a fiction writer to begin with? Or where did this all come from? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I have written my whole life. I was an avid reader as a kid. So I just lived in books. And then I would 
read the books out loud on tape. I would like record myself reading them out loud. And I loved fantasy and also just living in a totally different time. Like, I did love history. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to be an actor. I wanted to like play out all those roles and characters. I didn't think about being a writer, even though I'd always written. It was just fun for me. So I wrote short stories and poetry and didn't think much of it until late 20s, went back to college, was done with acting, and for fun, decided to try to write a novel. <laughs> I had an independent study with a professor. Because that's a blast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, I thought, you know, it just started out as 100 pages. I just set myself small goals. And so for this sort of thesis project with a professor, I was going to just write 100 pages. That was like all I had to do for my school part of it. But I knew that I was going to try to expand that into a full novel. And yeah, I had, even in years of like living in LA and acting, I would sort of hole up in my apartment and sit and write like mm. for eight hours a day, nonce, whatever, you know, nothing. <laughs> it was like, it was my soothing, therapeutic thing that I did on the side. Yeah. And, then and would just, you write fiction or would you write sort of about yourself? Both. You, like, so I know, do- yeah, at the time I wrote about myself, but it was in fiction form, it was in story huh. form. Okay. So I, first person accounts of things that were happening or had happened past, present. So, yeah. Do you still have those? I do. <laughs> I've thought at some time of turning them into a series of short stories. Yeah. They're what? all very personal, though, so I'd have, to get, I'd have to get there. We could pretend they weren't about you. <laughs> That's true. Thank <laughs> you for telling anybody. <laughs> your secret <laughs> saved with me and everybody who's listening. <laughs> but tell me for two minutes about your acting life. What was that like? What did you end up doing? Like, how did... Tell me a little more about it. Yeah, I mean, I loved the theater. I went out to L.A. and I, was, I went to school at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, did a lot of theater. And then I left and did theater in Aspen for a summer and then went and came to New York to do some theater. And here, I just was here for two years, just, you know, sludging away and like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Trekking to auditions, you just end up going on a lot of really bad auditions. That's after a while that I'm not actually doing any acting. And I stopped and realized that everything I'd gone out for, I didn't want to do anyway. It's like these are all, you know, you don't go out for great things when you're just trying to go out for like vampire. I remember I auditioned for a like space lawyer on some other planet with aliens and those are the sorts of things. I was like, this is not Jane Austen. Can't I be in one of those movies? Maybe you need like a sliding doors type of book where you did become the the space rocket law, whatever <laughs> man, and how your life would have gone had you gotten those roles. That's a, that is an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. if I c- continued on that path. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we wouldn't probably be sitting here talking maybe about this book. Maybe not. <laughs> a lot of this book, by the way, is about, not by the way, obviously you know this, but a relationship between two sisters, especially an older one who, you know, was born robust and talented, a ballerina and all the rest of it. And her younger sister, who was born with a heart condition and was very frail and small and never really developed in contrast to her older sister. And so despite that, the older sister is very caregiving until she leaves, sent away by the dad, question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah. But it's a lot about that and her trying to find each other again and their whole relationship. Do you have a sister? Like, where did this part come from? I do. I, I'm such a good detective. Yeah, you're very good. I, it's funny, I didn't think about, until you were sort of recanting how many details of that do in similar ways reflect my relationship with my sister, who is two years older. And I have always admired her greatly. And I certainly went through that 
phase where you're like a scrawny preteen and your sister's blossoming into this beautiful woman two years older than you and you think you'll never catch up. And we've had, our relationship has always been really good, but there have been times where we've sort of fallen away and, you know, didn't worry about physically losing her, but sort of emotionally losing her and then kind of coming back to being, and she's definitely one of the closest people in my life to me, so... I do have a strong personal sister connection. (laughs) You also told the book from the point of view of the mother and how it felt for Jean, Jeannie, Jean? Jean, Jean, yes. To be caregiving a child who at birth they thought perhaps would not live very long and in fact ends up living throughout the book. Yeah. So dealing with that kind of uncertainty hovering over her and how that affects her. So I was wondering, Mick, do you, not not that this all has to be about you, but that sort of health crisis moment with her daughter and all the doctors and all this, have you gone through something like that? I haven't. No. God bless. Thank God I have not. No, I have quite healthy children. But yeah, some people have asked me too, where did you come up with the idea of having, giving her the heart condition? And it's kind of a funny thing that I don't have a memory of a moment mm-hmm. that I decided just kind of, she just came that way as the character. It was always my plan with her, but I felt like it made, it just put everything on edge a little bit. Yep. So. I also feel it's like every mother's worst nightmare is something That's right. incurable with your child. And <clears throat> what do you do and how do you handle that? And yeah. And I liked the idea too. And I had this incredible, someone review the book just on Goodreads and say, I was born with this heart condition and it's made me look at my life very differently because had I been born with it earlier, I wouldn't have lived. I was like, oh, wow. That was very touching and personal to have someone relate to that in in that way. See, you you might have missed this marketing opportunity. (laughs) You have a whole group of people with a specific heart condition. That is a very curable thing now. American Heart Association newsletter. (laughs) That's interesting. It's true. I called a a heart surgeon to get the information, and I gave him, I said very specifically, this is what I need. I need something that would have been incurable in this time in history. Yep. And she could have lived or she could have died. Like, is there, what's out there? What would yeah. have been? He knew immediately. He's like, oh, this would be the perfect disease for you to give her. I was like, great, done. Thank you. I have so much respect for doctors. <laughs> and they're like, all the knowledge that they just have at their fingertips. That's right. Amazing. Well, after all that schooling. Still. I mean, I went to school for a long time. I can't pull anything out of my brain that quickly anymore. <laughs> well, tell me about actually writing the book. You said some of the characters came with different, you know, physical features already. Tell me about writing it. Did you, where and when did you write it? How long did it take? This is your second book. It's my second book. I do, so with my first and second and third that's written, I can write a book in about a year. Okay. From, I research for about four to six months and I try not to write when I'm researching. Like I just dive into the research process and I have the idea for the story sort of percolating. I just kind of let it sit there. And then I really like to put the research aside and try not to get too distracted with that when I start my book. Uh, So if I've done my research well, then I can just kind of dive into the story. And I can get the first draft written in about 10 to 12 months. And then it takes about a year to edit. And this book was, it then, from the point of selling, it took two years for it to get published. Which isn't that... It's usually about a year and a half, unless you have, like, my next book will luckily come out within a year, but that's only because we kind of sold it on a partial, and then, but the process to get a book that's totally completed onto a shelf is a very long process, much longer than I thought when I embarked on it. I remember I got my first book deal, and she's like, it will come out in a year and a half. 
a year and a half. What are they doing? Why does it take so long? But so I, yeah, I started in 2016. So what is your next book about? Not so, now, no, yeah. Now that you've teased us. My next book I'm really excited about. It is about a real Cuban actress named Estelita Rodriguez. I know her daughter, who's in her 70s, who told me her mother's story many years ago. And I always wanted to turn it into a book because it's an amazing story. So it's actually her, the daughter and her mother's story. I went to just tell her mother's story, but she was such a part of it, having given it to me from her perspective. And obviously in telling it, she was telling her side of things. So I felt like I have to tell her side of things too. So, yeah. And it doesn't have a title. We're working on the title. So the working title was just Estelita. That's not bad. <laughs> no, I, I, I like it, but I, I, titles get changed. Okay. <laughs> People are into, I, I feel like there are sort of fads with titles. So right now it's, like sentences for titles, you know, is that like long? Yes. Sort of. Yep. You know, the one I love is On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. I think that is the most beautiful title. But those types of, yes, titles are drawing people in right now. It's true. And curse words, I feel like, are all the rage. Wait, what are? I feel like curse words in oh, titles really? right now. Not for fiction. <laughs> oh, right. Like yes, yes. All the self-help, it's like, there has to be some curse word. Curse word. There has to be some sort of asterisk in some <laughs> part of the word or else, I don't know, forget it. <laughs> I just want to read this one passage. I'm totally jumping around here, but the psychological effects of being incarcerated, basically. So Effie, who's the younger heart-conditioned daughter, and this is from the very beginning, but you wrote, it was a relief to escape into a different darkness. It made my fear, and this is how she's saying, she's in the dark, but she's now closing her eyes. It was a relief to escape into a different darkness. It made my fear less palpable. I could be anywhere behind my lids. I could go back. I could make another choice on that night when the simple, beautiful sound of a fiddle in another impenetrable darkness called to us. If only they hadn't played or my sister and I hadn't listened. That was so great. Thank you. So tell me about starting it off that way and the feelings that go into being separated from your family, especially as a child. Yeah, that I went back and rewrote. Okay. Because that is the prologue. Yeah. But I had, I always tend to have some little bit of prologue in my books. It's a bit of a habit I'm seeing I'm developing. <laughs> but you're accomplished enough now. You can I say can it's have a habit. habit. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a habit. I'm such a prolific I novelist. Habit, that, I have, yeah. of all of my books yeah. seems to start this way. <laughs> I wanted to show, so I obviously wrote, I, I do write chronologically. So I did write the beginning of the book. Then she gets put in the House of Mercy. And so then I wrote the scene where she's, it's expanded on that. Yes. And then I wanted to, I just wanted to tease the reader. I wanted to give some beginning point to the psychological state that she gets to, which especially because she is dying or thinks she might be dying or doesn't know. And so her body is kind of breaking down in a way that coupled with being trapped and I think had different psychological effects, obviously, than other women in there who would think that they could get out. So it just made the urgency of it all for her so much more prevalent because I have to get out or someone has to get me because I might not survive and then I'll never see my family again. Whereas I think other girls could think, oh, three years is a lot and I want to see them. But it does mess with you psychologically in a far more intense way for her to think that she might not live through it. It's like the ultimate separation anxiety. That's right. It's like as bad like today, as it can I feel get. like they would be like throwing like Zoloft under the door. <laughs> like, here, try this. You know? Numb you. Yeah, yeah, numb you. Exactly. Well, have you ever thought about, have you thought about making this into a play? I have never written a play. 
think they'd be very challenging. I've thought of writing screenplays or trying to write a screenplay. That seems almost easier than staging something. I feel like you need to have a director's eye to stage something. And even though I was an actor, I never had a desire to be a director. Mm. I think you need to see the big picture on, on a stage in a very specific way. And even with screenwriting, like I, I think it'd be fun to try it, but I don't know if I would be any good at it. I'm not sure. It's a skill. It's a totally different skill That's to have, cool. to like see from this visual. I, like I like to get deep psychologically. It's one of the reasons I decided to write novels versus say a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Being an actor, that might've been my more natural <laughs> go-to, which I considered for sure. Why not just write your own stuff? but I really didn't know how to get into the head. You just are describing everything, dialogue and sort of camera, right? So the idea that you can go psychologically deep into your characters, that's what I liked to do as an actor. So I get to do that in my character descriptions, which is very different than staging something. Interesting. But... I'll just say that again. <laughs> yes. You could make it a play and then you could be the mom and then it could all. <laughs> uh, that sounds fantastic. A play is a really fun idea. I never even considered a play to think of making it a play. That's a really fun idea. All right. Just like stew on I'm going to stew on that. <laughs> Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? I think that the biggest challenge authors have is completing their work. I feel like so many people start out, they want to do it, and then they get discouraged at some point and set it aside. And I, my biggest advice would be that even if you feel discouraged and you think it's terrible, I think you should finish it. Because it probably is terrible. The first draft's always terrible. The first book I wrote, which is not published, five years I wrote it. And then I remember there was a single day where I deleted 60 pages in like one day. It was 500 pages. It was a mess. It was like such a mess. But I just kept going and kept going. And then you overwrite and then you take it away. And so... My advice is that like, it's just to to finish the work and to have like something complete that you can then work with is I feel like the biggest advice I could give. That is good advice. (laughs) Can't edit something that doesn't exist. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Not that you have to edit, but anyway, good (laughs) advice. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate uh, it. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Again, today's episode has been sponsored by my collaboration with Page One Books and Hampton's Hand Poured. Please check out the book box bundle retailing on pageonebooks.com, also available on my website, zibbyowens.com. Please check it out. And thanks again for checking out wefoundtime.com for this week's five new essays. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Have a great week, everyone. 